Please turn with me to Isaiah 25, our Old Testament reading. We'll read verses 1 through 9. O Lord, you are my God. I will exalt you. I will praise your name. For you have done wonderful things, plans formed of old, faithful and sure. For you have made the city a heap, the fortified city a ruin. The foreigner's palace is a city no more. It will never be rebuilt. Therefore, strong peoples will glorify you. Cities of ruthless nations will fear you. For you have been a stronghold to the poor, a stronghold to the needy in his distress, a shelter from the storm and a shade from the heat. For the breath of the ruthless is like a storm against a wall, like heat in a dry place. You subdue the noise of foreigners as heat by the shade of a cloud or the song of the ruthless is put down. On this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food full of marrow, of aged wine well-refined. And he will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all peoples, the veil that is spread over all nations. He will swallow up death forever. And the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces. And the reproach of his people he will take away from the earth, for the Lord has spoken. It will be said on that day, Behold, this is our God. We have waited for him that he might save us. This is the Lord. We have waited for him. Let us be glad and rejoice in his salvation. Amen. Please turn with me now to our text in Matthew 12, verses 38 to 42. Over the last several weeks, we just concluded sermon series on the book of Jonah. And so today, our text coming from Matthew will be reflecting on what Jesus has to say about the sign of Jonah in his own life and death and resurrection. Matthew twelve thirty-eight. Then some of the scribes and Pharisees answered him, Teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. But he answered them, An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And behold, something greater than Jonah is here. The queen of the south will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And behold, something greater than Solomon is here. Amen. You may be seated. On Friday evening, some of you were here when we looked at the count from the end of 
Matthew's Gospel, of Jesus' burial. And we ask the question, why is it important that Jesus was buried? We talked about how Jesus' burial demonstrates uh, the duration of his death, the depth of his humiliation, the dignity of his body, and his defeat of the grave. There's one thing we didn't talk about at that time, due to time constraints, and that was the Old Testament concept of Sheol, the place of the dead. Um, One of the significant things about Jesus' burial is that by being buried, Jesus was entering into and remaining in Sheol, in the grave. Um, In our recent study of Acts, that idea came up pretty prominently, right, in, in Peter's Pentecost sermon, where he looks back at Psalm 16, we sang earlier, at David's expression of hope that you will not abandon my soul to Sheol, or let your Holy One see corruption. Now, David, of course, died and was buried, Peter says, and um, well, kind of tongue-in-cheek, he says, and his tomb is with us to this day. David is still in his grave, but... What was true for David, figuratively and partially during his life and reign as king, is true of Jesus, the son of David, literally and to the fullest degree. He was buried, he entered Sheol, but he didn't stay there. Now, Psalm 16 and and that kind of David context for this idea is, is just one place in the Old Testament where uh, this Sheol theme comes up very significantly. Uh, One other very important Old Testament reference to Sheol is in Jonah chapter 2. In that great prayer of Jonah where he begins, I called out to the Lord out of my distress, and he answered me, out of the belly of Sheol I cried, and you heard my voice. So what Jonah's doing is he's interpreting his experience right then in the belly of the fish as a kind of burial. Not only a death-like experience, but a grave-like experience, a burial-like experience. And so as we, as we continue to consider the importance then of Jesus' burial and what followed his burial, his resurrection from the grave, um, it's good for us to give attention to this passage and and what Jesus has to say about the sign of Jonah. So let's look at it in three parts this morning. First, Jesus and Jonah, verses 38 to 39. Second will be the sign of Jonah, verse 40. And then lastly, greater than Jonah, verses 41 to 42. So Jesus and Jonah, the sign of Jonah, and greater than Jonah. Now, throughout the series we just finished uh, on the book of Jonah, we've we've talked about a, a number of parallels between Jonah and the Lord Jesus, including uh, many contrasts. Contrasts, how they're quite different. So the book of Jonah begins with the Lord sending Jonah on a mission. Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for its evil has come up before me. And Jesus, likewise, was given a mission by God the Father. In John 17, Jesus prays, I have given them the words that you gave me. He's speaking of his disciples at this point, and he says, And they have received them and have come to know in truth that I came from you, and they have believed that you sent me. 
Now, how Jonah responded to his mission from the Lord and how Jesus responded to his mission are very, very different. It could not be more different, right? Uh, Jonah was a reluctant prophet. When he received his mission, he did not choose to accept it. He ran away. While Jesus, on the other hand, willingly undertook this mission, which he knew which he knew would involve his humiliation, his suffering, his death. You think about John 10, 17 and 18, where he says, For this reason the Father loves me, because I laid down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, Jesus says, and I have authority to take it up again. And then he concludes, This charge I have received from my Father. Jonah was told, merely go preach to this city that you don't want to preach to. And with that basic mission, Jonah said, no, I'm not going to do it. Jesus was given a much more dire and costly charge, mission, to go and lay down his life for the people that he was sent to. Much higher stakes, a much more total commitment, and yet Jesus willingly said, yes, I will lay down my life by my own authority and I will take it up again. And so for Jonah, that death-like experience in the sea and in the belly of the fish, that grave-like experience in the the belly of the fish, that was the, the, the consequence of his refusal to carry out his mission. Jesus' death actually was his mission. So was his burial. Now, in Jonah, when the, when the prophet finally repents and he goes on his mission to Nineveh, remember that the people of that city um, immediately responded um, very dramatically to his preaching. They believed the word of God, and they re- repented. They turned from their sin, and God spared them, right? Now, this is another contrast. You compare Jonah's audience with Jesus' audience with Jesus' prophetic ministry to Israel, the um, immediate kind of apparent results are not so encouraging, right? The question that the scribes and the Pharisees ask in verse 38 might sound at first like uh, an honest question, a fair inquiry. If, if you're who you say you are, well, why don't you do something supernatural to prove it? But the fact is that this is not an honest question. In fact, Jesus has already given them, even very, very recently, some very compelling evidence of his identity and his authority. He's just performed a very remarkable sign just back in verse 22, the healing of the blind and mute demon-possessed man. The problem in the context of this chapter is that when the Pharisees heard about that sign, a sign that Jesus has already given, Um, they gave that remarkable sign a very sinister spin. They said, well, you know, the only reason he's able to cast out demons is because he's in cahoots with the devil, right? With the prince of demons. And so they've they've already proven about themselves that a sign simply is not going to work to convince them that Jesus is who he says he is or to believe in him or to follow him. 
And why is that? Well, it's because they have already determined from the outset to oppose him. Any sign that he does, they will simply take it and twist it to fit their preconceived narrative, their anti-Jesus narrative. The plain evidence that Jesus has already provided, they've refused to acknowledge. And so they've willfully misconstrued it and misattributed it to the power of the devil. Teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. Right. They're saying, do something amazing. Prove to us that you have the right, that you have the authority to teach us. But Jesus is not going to take that bait. He answered them instead. An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign. He's describing them in terms very much like the Old Testament prophets used to describe ancient Israel and their spiritual adultery against the Lord. The fact is that Jesus has come calling them to repentance, and it's actually these religious leaders, these scribes and Pharisees, who, unlike Nineveh, but very much like Jonah, have refused to listen, have rejected God's word, and run with all their hearts in the opposite direction. And it's these religious leaders who are showing, really, the spirit of Jonah, when they should be showing the spirit of Nineveh. Well, Jesus goes on and he says, But you know what? One sign will be given to you. One sign will be given to you, and that is the sign of the prophet Jonah. Understand what he's doing here. I might consider another incident in Jesus' life. This reminds me of. This is in the Gospel of John, right after Jesus cleanses the temple in John chapter 2. And there also, there also the religious leaders ask him for a sign. You say, what sign do you show us for doing these things? And behind that question lies the more explicit one. Who gave you the right? Who gave you the authority, Jesus, to overturn these tables and to drive out the tradespeople from the temple grounds? Strikingly, the answer that Jesus gives in that case is very similar in substance to the one he gives here. He uses a different word picture, different imagery, But he's talking about exactly the same reality there in John 2. Jesus answered them, John 2, 19, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. And of course the people he's talking to get all offended because they think he's talking about that temple where he's standing there in Jerusalem, the temple building. But John says he was speaking about the temple of his body. Destroy this temple. And verse 22 concludes, When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. What's the sign that will prove to us that you have the right to tell us what to do? And the gist of the answer, both there in John 2 and here in Matthew 12, is really the same. It's going to be my resurrection from the dead. The great sign from God to all men and women and boys and girls everywhere in all time, authenticating the authority, the kingship, the supreme position as head and ruler of all things and all people of the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God. This is what Paul is getting at in Romans chapter 1 at the very beginning of his letter, uh, laying out the gospel to that church when he says that Christ was descended from David according to the flesh 
and was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the Spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead. Jesus Christ, our Lord. Okay, so what does all this have to do with Jonah? We look at verse 40. Verse 40, For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Now we have to understand Jesus is speaking somewhat figuratively here when he speaks of the the three nights. Um, he's, He's representing in a general sense the period of time between his death and resurrection, using this figurative language to draw this analogy between himself and Jonah, to connect his ministry and message with Jonah's ministry and message. See, it's not only the their experience that's being connected of the death and resurrection um, or burial and resurrection. It's, it's, the, it's the connection between their ministries, the connection between their messages and their audiences, which he's going to draw as we go on. Now, as I already said, um, Jesus and Jonah suffered this death and burial kind of experience. Jonah figuratively dead and buried in the sea. Jesus literally dead and buried in the, on the cross and in the tomb. But they, they, they suffered that those parallel experiences for very different reasons, right? Jonah went through it because of his own sin and folly. Jesus went through it because of our sin and folly, right? which he was bearing for us. But the experiences themselves were quite similar, quite similar. Remember what we saw in Jonah 2. You cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the flood surrounded me. All your waves and billows passed over me. Then I said, I am driven away from your sight. What a fitting description that could just as well be of Jesus' experience on the cross. The billows of the wrath of God flooding over him and his heart crying out, Oh, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And... Jonah says, the waters closed in over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me. And then he goes on, I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever. And what a fitting description that could be of the burial of Jesus, of his descent into the belly of Sheol, into the gut of the grave. But then what happened next for Jonah? In that prayer, he says, Yet you brought up my life from the pit, O Lord my God. Jesus, Hebrews 5 tells us, offered up prayers and supplications like Jonah, by the way, with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. And he was heard. He was heard. And the resurrection is the great proof of that, the great answer to Christ's cries. Now, a minute ago, I said that Jesus is drawing this analogy between himself and Jonah, his his experience and Jonah's experience for a reason. By connecting their experiences of death and resurrection, he is likewise connecting his ministry and message with Jonah's ministry and message. And this is where the payoff really comes, the impact of Jesus' argument here, bringing us to the third point, greater than Jonah. Verse 41, the men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. Why? Because they repented. 
They repented at the preaching of Jonah. Think back to Jonah's message to Nineveh. Yet 40 days and Nineveh will be overthrown. And at first you might think, well, that's a lot different from Jesus' message, isn't it? That's, that sounds like a very Old Testament-y kind of message of, of judgment and doom. Jesus came to bring love and grace and salvation, right? All those things are, all those things are true. But of course, so did, so did Jonah against his own will. What was Jonah really bringing by God's providence, by, in God's plan to Nineveh? He was bringing them love and grace and salvation. And what was, did Jesus come preaching to the people of Israel? From the very beginning of his ministry, of his public ministry in Matthew 4, 17, what was the central message of Jesus' own preaching? It was from that time Jesus began to preach saying, Repent! That was the first word of Jesus' sermon to Israel. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. So the message of Jesus was not, after all, all that different from the message of Jonah. Jesus, too, came proclaiming a call to repentance in the face of the coming of the Lord. A coming which the Old Testament scriptures had always pictured as a coming of both judgment and salvation. What makes the difference in which of those you experience when the Lord comes is how you respond to his servant and his word. Now, in the, in the history of Jonah, Jonah is sent to preach to Nineveh, right? So that's, that's the audience within the story, Jonah speaking to Nineveh. Uh, but one thing we've reflected on a little bit is that the, the book of Jonah... The book of Jonah, who was the audience of the book of, for the book of Jonah? The book of Jonah was not written to Nineveh, right? The book of Jonah was written to Israel. Israel was the audience for that prophetic book. And uh, some of the writers reflecting on Jonah really helped me here to, to see this, that the message of the book of Jonah is really a message for Israel, ultimately. Israel, who in Jonah's day and after was standing under the threat of the judgment of God for their repeated rebellion against him, their repeated rejection of his word through his prophets. And so the impact of that prophetic book for Israel was to say, Israel, look at Nineveh. Pagan Nineveh, wicked Nineveh, cruel Nineveh. Look, they listened to the word of God. They repented. And against all expectations, especially Jonah's, they were spared. God relented. Oh, oh, Israel, if you would but listen to the Lord like Nineveh did. It's there to put Israel to shame, call them to respond in faith and repentance as that great, cruel, and wicked nation had done in that generation. Well, by now... Uh, many centuries had passed since the time of Jonah. You think about how much for Israel still remained the same. Israel still needed to listen to the voice of the Lord and repent. And now here had come this ultimate prophet with a capital P. And all Israel was now being faced with the great choice. Are we going to respond like Nineveh, believing the word of God, turning from our sin, obeying his call to repent, or are we going to respond like Jonah did? turn a blind eye and a deaf ear to the word of God and run with all our might the other way. And so far, 
the movers and shakers in Israel, at least, have demonstrated through their response to Jesus that their hearts are far more like Jonah's in his rebellion than they are like Nineveh's in their repentance. And so Jesus issues a severe rebuke in this context. He says, on judgment day, you people who who love to think of yourselves as the, the chosen ones, you who pride yourselves on your adherence to the outward forms of the law. If you set yourselves next to the, that generation of pagan Nineveh on Judgment Day who repented at the preaching of Jonah, it's going to be clear for all to see that your religion, by comparison, is a sham. That your supposed righteousness is actually a mask for your rebellious and hypocritical and unrepentant hearts. And he's telling them, listen, something greater than Jonah is here, standing right in front of you. And if, if God could use a broken and disobedient and recalcitrant and angry and bristling rebellious servant like Jonah to bring revival to Nineveh, if those people were able to listen to that messed up prophet and respond the way they did to him in spite of all of his failures, then how much more, Israel, should you today be able to listen to me? Be able to listen to the voice of the Son of God, the prophet of prophets, the word become flesh, God himself dwelling among you. Oh, Israel, as Psalm 81, 8 says, if you would but listen to me, open your mouth wide, just open your mouth and I will fill it. But as that Psalm laments, but my people did not listen to my voice, Israel would not submit to me. It's the story of Israel's life, so much of their history. Now listen, brothers and sisters, that does not have to be the story of your life. Jesus came to his own, John 1, and his own did not receive him. And frankly, for most of the people that he preached to during his earthly ministry, that door of salvation closed long ago. But that door is not closed for you. It is open wide to you this day through the preaching of his word in this living moment. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts against it. Now is the time, God's word says, today is the day of salvation as long as it is called today. By now, many centuries again have passed. But how much for us today still remains the same? We still need to listen to the voice of the Lord and repent. And here comes the ultimate prophet with a capital P. And all of us are now faced with that same choice. Are we going to respond like Nineveh, believing the word of God, turning from our sin, obeying this call to repent? Or are we going to respond like Jonah did? And as unbelieving Israel after him did with their Jonah-like spirit. The news of the empty tomb is joyful news. It's amazing news. It is good news for the people of God. It is also news that comes with a very serious call, a command from the risen and reigning King Jesus. The resurrection of Jesus impresses upon each one of us The sign of Jonah. The resurrection is the ultimate evidence of that great central message of both the book of Jonah 
and so much of the rest of the Bible, that salvation belongs to the Lord. Salvation belongs to the Lord. And today is that day of salvation for every one of us. Because one greater than Jonah has come and laid his life down for us. And he has taken it up again. And now, as the apostolic preaching impressed on all who would hear, and now that risen Savior commands all men everywhere to repent. Let's pray. Our Father and our God, we thank you that you were able to use your broken and sinful servant Jonah to bear your word to the people of Nineveh and bring about such a great outpouring of your grace on uh, that city in their day. Lord, our hearts grieve to see at the coming of Jesus so many rejecting uh, that one greater, so much greater than Jonah. Well, Lord, we pray that today you would help us to listen, not to refuse him who is speaking, to turn at his call in faith and repentance. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.